Within the depths of the strip mall of the dam lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient bat-winged doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and disillusion. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Lens's poem, do convene to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem, or to be cast down as one as worthless hokum. Let us die as in judgment. Welcome, brethren, and welcome, listeners. We're back from our recess, rested, refreshed, and ready to take on the rest of Wild Zero. Maybe we'll even survive the remaining analysis to render judgment. The story so far, Wild Zero is a Japanese punk zombie movie from 2000 by Tatsuro Takauchi, a film with a gleeful contempt for all boundaries, particularly those of talent and taste, and which features the Japanese analog to the Ramones, the notorious jet punk band Guitar Wolf. Rather than analyze this film in its entirety, in the interests of staving off irreversible Cinemania, the Cinemania Society have convened to analyze Wild Zero from the perspectives of its various characters in the style of Rashomon. In our next segment, Brother Ethan shall tell us the story of Toshi and Hanako. Thank you, Brother Zachariah. <clears throat> Toshi was exactly where he'd promised himself he'd never wind up again. Stuck in a car, arguing with Hanako, Masao behind the wheel. Toshi sighed inwardly. His resolutions to himself would be a hell of a lot easier to keep if he actually learned to drive. Masao and Hanako had been lovers before she and Toshi had met, but now they just hung out. All the damn time. Toshi was supposed to be her boyfriend, but he felt like the third wheel more often than not. He'd seen them get drunk and make out a couple of times, too, but when he'd confronted her about it, she promised Toshi that things were over between them, and making out was as far as things ever went, Toshi still harbored his suspicions. When Masao had shown up in this beater that afternoon, Toshi knew things were going to get bad. Masao's hair looked like he'd combed it with a light socket. That and the manic gleam in his eye told Toshi the man had gone off his medication. Again. Toshi had to put up an objection. Hanako didn't have Toshi's balls completely in her purse, after all. Masao glowered at them through the windscreen while Toshi muttered his litany of complaints. Masao was a reckless driver. He got lost. There was that time he set those cows on fire. But no, Hanako had steamrolled him. They could be the first ones to take pictures of the meteorite and sell them for a fistful of yen. Besides, how else were they going to get there? Honestly, what kind of man didn't know how to drive or get a job? At that, Toshi had clammed up. Reluctantly, he got into Masao's rattle trap and off they went in pursuit of fallen stars. Now everything was going to shit, as expected. The car was too hot, too dusty, the stereo was too loud, and Toshi found he was still in the same goddamned argument with goddamned Hanako, the stubborn bitch. Really, it was just a continuation of the one that started before he got into the car, the one that started the morning before Masao even showed up, the one that stretched all the way back five years. It seemed like all they did was fight. God only knew why he loved her so hard. Masao had that crazy look in his eye again. It was the same look he'd had right before he'd committed beef arson. Toshi felt his stomach nod in dread. The set of Masao's jaw and the savagery with which he whipped off the highway into the Esso station spoke volumes about his intent. Toshi thought he might stave off whatever was simmering in Masao's mind if he got inside first. He did have to take a leak, after all. 
Stiff-legged, he and Hanako staggered into the station. Toshi's knot of dread cinched tighter as he heard the car door slam, heard Masao's footsteps as he raced up to push past them inside. Masao cackled. Here it comes, Toshi cringed. Masao whipped out a pair of butterfly knives, brandished them at the trio in the station, demanded money. The clerk stared dumbly. The girl and the pedal pushers fainted dead away, bounced off the couch and slithered to the floor. Toshi swore inwardly. Masao had really done it this time. How did he keep ending up in these goddamn situations? For what felt like the first time in his life, Toshi seized the initiative. He turned on his heel, left the station. He was even mildly surprised when Hanako actually followed him. Maybe she'd been as appalled by Masao's behavior as he had. Toshi climbed into the driver's seat and surveyed the controls. How hard could it be? Driving without a license was a lesser charge to armed robbery, and he didn't want to stick around to see anything play out. Toshi had just worked out how to start the goddamn thing when some asshole pulled up on a cheap motorbike. The asshole was dressed in biker leathers and jeans, wore a pompadour straight off an Elvis album, which the asshole even paused to perfect in the rearview mirror. The guy wasn't a gaijin, just a local who looked like he had an America fetish. The guy swaggered into the station. Boy, was he in for a surprise. Well, Masao was the asshole's problem to deal with now, and Toshi's no longer. Something must have happened, though. Seconds after the asshole had gone into the station, Masao ran back out, only now sporting a nosebleed. Breathless, Masao dropped into the passenger seat. On reflex, Toshi fired up the heat, put her into gear, and wobbled away like he'd been doing it all his life. Didn't even think about it. Hanako shot him a look of surprise for the second time in less than five minutes. A few kilometers down the highway, Toshi was basking in his newfound sense of self. Hanukkah was still arguing with him, the meteorite was the other way, but Toshi wasn't backing down. He was driving for once. Masao's mania had morphed into a shame spiral. Toshi almost felt pity for the man. Almost. Maybe that was why Hanukkah had kept the fool around, an overdeveloped sense of pity. Maybe that was why she had stayed with Toshi. No. Toshi pushed away the thought. The word accomplice bubbled up into his forebrain was also stifled. The sign ahead pointed the way to a rest stop. Hanako pleaded with Toshi to pull over, and this time, he indulged her. Things were getting weird. Masao's mood had sunk still further into suicidal despondency. If he actually did hurt himself, Toshi didn't want him to do it in the car next to him. The blood would ruin his favorite track jacket. Outside, the air was warm and honey-thick, but at least there was a breeze. Everyone's spirits were lifting. Hanako lay on the tailgate, fanning herself and sulking. Masao, ever the picture of sanity, piled up twigs for a campfire. God knew how else they would keep warm on a May afternoon in the tropics. Toshi had managed to get one of the butterfly knives from Masao and was now practicing how to flip it open. With a start, Hanako popped up, flung down her fan in disgust, and stomped off into the woods. As she did, she flung a barb about Toshi's being unemployed. Damn, she always knew how to hit him right where he lived. Toshi followed, determined to regain the upper hand. Toshi revived the eternal argument as they walked deeper into the woods, but when Hanako turned, Toshi could see something had changed in her eyes. She stopped, and he leaned in to kiss her. At first she rebuffed him, then turned and kissed him hungrily. It had to be on her terms, just like everything else. Just as things began to heat up, Toshi heard Masao scream in the distance. Hanako broke off. She ran back. Toshi cursed. It was always Masao. Toshi caught up with Hanako just as she broke from the tree line. Their makeshift campsite was abandoned, the car door standing open. As he drew closer, Toshi saw blood on the car door. A lot of blood. Fuck. Had Masao been that far gone? Hanako spotted a trail of blood leading back up the dirt road, which they followed and found Masao. At least, what was left of him. 
Masao was dead. Messily dead. His body was propped up against a cyclone fence, surrounded by a knot of people who were guzzling the bowels that hung from Masao's open abdomen like a salaryman's family at a hot pot. At least, they looked like people at first glance, but something was very wrong with them. Their flesh was the color of spoiled meat and they stank of rot. Toshi saw wriggling maggots in the eyes of several of them. Ghouls. Zombies. The Walking Dead. The words popped unbidden into Toshi's mind and he found he was screaming. So was Hanako. Toshi fled into the woods, and for the second time that day, Hanako followed him. Toshi and Hanako had been running for hours. It had gotten dark, and they had lost their way, but not each other. Toshi cursed. If only they'd remembered to get into the car instead of take off on foot! His legs were burning, he had a stitch in his side, and he and Hanako were both filthy and covered in scratches. Suddenly, Toshi saw a light wax beyond the trees, and he whooped in relief. Headlights! A road! They were saved! They both broke the tree line and came pelting out onto the blacktop to flag down the drivers. There were two vehicles in the caravan. The first was an asinine custom superbike with a cowling shaped like a wolf and a flaming exhaust pipe. The other was more Toshi's style, a classic Toyota Spider Coupe, bright red. The trio of men driving the vehicles were the same flavor of asshole that Toshi remembered having seen arrive at the petrol station earlier that day. Leathers, greasy hairdos, sunglasses, bad attitudes. Had that only been lunchtime? God, it felt like a decade. With Hanako in tow, Toshi ran up to the asshole on the bike and began jabbering at him, simultaneously trying to tell his story and blag a ride. The asshole gazed at him contemptuously through his wraparound shades, then grabbed Toshi by the collar, hoisting him a meter off the ground. Where's Ace? he sneered. Toshi gawped like a carp. Ace? Who the hell was Ace? He struggled, but the asshole's grip was iron. Then it dawned on Toshi. The first asshole he'd seen at the petrol station was part of their little gang of assholes. All right, sure, Toshi would take them all back to where he'd seen the guy so they could reunite their big family of assholes. He and Hanako were bunged into the backseat of the Toyota, a tiny enough space even if they hadn't had to share it with a drum kit and bass guitar. Again, Toshi found himself at the whim of a psychotic at the wheel. The station was a mess. The lights were flickering, interior gutted. Toshi had decided the three assholes must be part of some band or other. He didn't know. He didn't like music. They sniffed around the place and turned up the same comb Toshi remembered having seen in the hands of the first asshole. Okay, ace, fine. Then the band started smacking Toshi around, and just as Hanako went into full mama bear mode, everyone froze as they heard the sound of groaning and shuffling. Toshi cringed. They were back. Toshi peeked out the window to see a horde of walking dead already filling in around the pumps. Just as the ghouls were turning to approach the station, a big green military vehicle came screaming in and mowed down several. A woman in a houndstooth bikini emerged with a pair of sleek automatics and began blowing the heads off the ghouls. Biker asshole himself produced a revolver and took some shots, but then they both ran dry and there were still a ridiculous number of zombies shambling around looking for someone to bite. And then Toshi saw something that left him gobsmacked. The biker produced a handful of glowing blue somethings and began flicking them out faster than Toshi could blink. Each object hit a ghoul in the head and it collapsed. In a twinkling, they were saved. It could only have been magic. Even the woman in the houndstooth bikini seemed impressed. When she asked the biker asshole what he was, Toshi was baffled to hear him say, Guitar Wolf. Well, that explained the custom mods on his superbike, if nothing else. The woman threw open the door to her tank, or whatever it was, and they all climbed in. Mm -hmm. 
Toshi marveled at the warehouse. The place was as big as a barn, with enough military hardware inside to destabilize a small nation. He'd only ever seen stuff like that on TV. Boy, he loved guns. Always had. Just being around a gun made him vibrate with power. Now he was in a building filled with them. He couldn't make up his mind which he'd pick up first. The woman, Yama-something, Yamazaki, Yamaguchi, Toshi had forgotten it immediately after she'd said it. At any rate, she didn't take kindly to him handling the merchandise. Not like she didn't have plenty to share, and the band idiots were already pawing through her stash-making selections. But Toshi couldn't? Well, fuck her. Toshi had had enough of women bossing him around. Today was different. He seized a nearby revolver and stuck it in Yama-whatever's face, told her what- before three words were out of his mouth, Toshi found himself on the concrete, weaponless, head ringing with impact. He stared down the barrel of Yamazaki's automatic and had the sudden crashing realization that a gun pointed in one's face wasn't a pleasant experience. Damn, he hadn't even seen her move. Hanako ran to his side, cursed out both of them, then helped Toshi up to his feet. Toshi sulked. It wasn't fair. Hell, Yamazaki was letting Guitar Wolf and his buddies arm up so they could go after their missing friend. They were even discussing some old movie about zombies. The fools. As if that could help. Everyone froze when a knock at the door came. Zombies couldn't knock, could they? Someone outside begged to be let in. Yamazaki had a terse exchange with whoever in the hell it was. It sounded like she knew him. She kept her automatic trained on the door and motioned for Toshi to open it. Why him? She urged him again. Fine. It's not like he had a choice. Ghouls outside, armed lunatics inside. This day had shaped up to be shit after all. He shuffled forward to slide open the door. It hadn't opened half a meter when a ghoul in the tatters of an expensive suit swarmed inside and took a bite out of Toshi's jugular along with a chunk of meat the size of his fist. The pain was enormous. It drove the breath out of him. His legs folded up and he collapsed to the floor. He heard gunshots, but they were meaningless against the agony. Hanako was suddenly there, cradling his head, staring into his eyes. It was then, as his life's blood was draining out of him onto the cold concrete, he realized she truly did love him. And he loved her more than anything. But then, why did he have this overpowering urge to bite her? Toshi faded into the abyss. The thing that had been Toshi shuffled aimlessly. Now and again, motions near it drove a reflexive reaction, but the fragments of memory that still flashed in its synapses were only sparks, nothing that could be mistaken for human consciousness. Its existence was a bottomless well of pain and hunger, all focused around a single image, Hanako. A car pulled up, something warm and filling inside. The thing that had been Toshi stumbled over to it. Noises from within the car assailed its senses, mostly gibberish, but then a phrase, guys in leather. That triggered something in the tattered cobwebs within the Toshi thing's skull, and it gurgled, Guitar Wolf. It pointed in the direction it had come. Suddenly, the morsel of flesh in the car was beside the Toshi thing, was dragging it toward the car. The Toshi thing's jaws began to close around the morsel's fingers, but then it was shut into a lightless, rumbling box. The next sensations were when the morsel of flesh pulled the thing that had been Toshi back into the light and set it on its feet. The morsel tugged the Toshi thing this way and that, pushing and shoving, but the morsel was careful and did not provide another opportunity to bite. There were bright flashes, flames, impacts that liquefied portions of the Toshi thing's torso, but that was all meaningless. Those things were not Hanako. The morsel disappeared. There were more bright lights, more loud noises, and the Toshi thing was allowed to shamble off into the dark once more. Then, a shape. A shape that caused the brightest flashes yet within the cooling meat inside the Toshi Thing's skull. The Toshi Thing drifted toward the silhouette. 
Hanako. The silhouette turned to reveal a body that was as cold and lifeless as the Toshi thing. The thing that had been Hanako responded. It staggered toward the Toshi thing. They fell into each other's arms, and they began to devour each other, collapsed into the street. Impossible hunger finally sated. The embers of consciousness finally faded, and they knew nothing further. Bravo. Thank you, Brother Ethan. Well, mm. what was your takeaway from Toshi and Hanako's story? I'll say this, that you actually made me care about what I dismissed as a pair, a bickering pair of obnoxious side characters that were put in there for just <laughs> zombie bait. <laughs> I think True. bickering and obnoxious says it all, really. I would have absolutely cut these two out. Masao was brilliant. He's insane. He looks like he's completely lost his mind entirely and wants to rob a gas station by just staring and grunting a little. And it works for him. It's a good look. I liked him, but the other two, I was, I don't always root for the zombies. I'm not always glad to see people devoured by the undead, but on this occasion, it came none too soon. And frankly, I wish both of them had been fed into the human meat grinder all the sooner. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you made them, well, yeah, you made them almost likable, I think. <laughs> Which is funny, because to me, Toshi is like the totally unlikable character. Like, I picked yeah. him because he was meaningless and unlikable. And I tried to write him as unlikable as possible. Like, you know, I'm watching this guy, you know, and he's he's clearly just written to be this sort of gormless dipshit, you know, bumbling through life. You know, they they make comments in the dialogue about that he's unemployed. And, and uh, I thought, okay, well, how about I write this from the perspective of somebody who's totally oblivious and wrapped up in himself? You know, somebody who spends more time eating his own liver and envy, you know, because every everybody else has a life you know and because this because brother andy uh, uh suggested we do this as a rashomon style and that was the thing that i think i found most compelling about that style of storytelling which actually i've you know as as somebody who studied film i i have to admit i've never actually seen rashomon i mean what that's yeah same. yeah i know how can you get through film school <laughs> oh and take God. film history and work in the film industry for multiple decades and never have seen rashomon well i haven't that's I know the, not idea. the way I heard it. It is an amazing film. Just I know. <laughs> but no, but the, the the reason why I knew what to do is because, you know, this will tell you how big of a dork I am. Um, my favorite of the mid-90s Star Wars novelizations, you know, all the different books that they did for the expanded universe was Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina. I like that they, one too. They do the Rashomon style thing, but with all the different creatures in the cantina and like you have the common events that happen that everybody sees in the Star Wars movie, but then like you get all this backstory of, you know, the the Jawa or whatever who happened to be in grabbing a beer at the time that, you know, Luke came in yeah. and got roughed up by the, the alien. The, the, there's enough proof the fact that you're on a movie podcast is enough, is enough proof that you're a geek. <laughs> well, my final, judgment on, my final judgment on these guys is we've had the wild, here are the zeros. <laughs> yes. <laughs> these are definitely the zeros in Wild Zero. Any other comments on Toshi and Hanako? Other than just being the the characters that you dislike and wait for them to get chomped on, they had a happy ending, which did involve them getting eaten by zombies. So I think, I think we got we got something good. 
I think that does touch on the overall theme of love has no bounder, boundaries, nationalities, or genders, but I would add, or life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it says something about these, that they didn't find true love until they were both dead. Yeah. Isn't that, that wild? That's pretty rock and roll. <laughs> they they exist to prove that sometimes love is the worst thing that can happen to you and it absolutely is not the answer to your problems in any way they needed counseling immediately and probably a divorce well to me this the, their their relationship and the way that it was consummated at the end of the film really spoke to the nihilism that's at the heart of punk mm. uh, you can't find something good till you're dead or there. They're the Sid and Nancy of the film, I guess. Except uh, instead of heroin, you got a zombie bites. <laughs> story of the evening brother andy is going to take and this i believe is the captain's story this is indeed the tale of the captain gather ye close my brethren draw your massive leather armchairs near and uh, fill your enormous elaborate pipes with more tobacco while i tell you about a man they call the captain <laughs> The captain is someone who lives life exactly the way he pleases. The laws of God and man mean nothing to the captain. He has traveled deep into his own Joseph Conrad-style personal heart of darkness. And like Kurtz before him, he has kicked himself free of the world in order to live in accordance with his own needs and personal drives. There are a few things that drive the captain. One is the absolute need to have hair that looks like a lacquered helmet of a Lego man. He goes nowhere without perfect hair, shaped like a perfect sphere polished to a sheen, like the glowing black eye of a shark on the dive. Another thing the captain needs are booty shorts that lace up the side, shorts that would make an exotic dancing man whore blush. The captain doesn't ever want you to wonder whether he's pleased to see you. He wants to send you an RSVP for the party in his pants before he even enters the room. No one else feels the need to do anything like this, and the captain feels nothing but contempt for lesser men who worship at the altar of trousers and wear their hair in a manner that's an unfeeling cosmos intended. When you meet the captain, you know damn well that he is the master of this ship and it's no love boat. The captain is also a businessman. He runs an entertainment establishment, which apparently caters to that segment of the Japanese community that is absolutely committed to deafening noise punk electric violence. Why is the captain running a club? We don't know. We don't need to know. You don't question the captain. The answers will only be uncomfortably erotic and terrifying. It's worth mentioning that the captain dislikes noise punk electric violent bands. He has no time for them at all, which makes his choice of career even more enigmatic. What the captain really wants to do is sell people little golden balls of unclear purpose. That's what he's up to when we first see him, and this will never be explained. The balls are important, though. Understand this, my friends. 
The captain is very much invested in his balls and in sharing them with others. So, the captain was enjoying a quiet night, trying to get his latest base head piece of strange to sample one of his balls. All she seems to want is cocaine, which is very unreasonable. When suddenly the noise punk electric violence band walk in looking like moody sunglasses at night dickheads. He's polite and calm. He tries to set a groovy mood by pausing to neck down an entire pint of milk while they watch in silence. For literally no reason at all, Guitar Wolf, for it is he, picks up a gun, calls the captain a pervert and points it at him. There is no reason for this at all. They literally just walked in the room. The captain has a massive pistol of his own to hand, for he wasn't just pleased to see them, and they stare each other down for a while. This is all totally unreasonable, and the captain reminds the Guitar Wolf that he made them big in the first place. Ace walks into the room and announces that rock and roll will never die, a statement he can't back up in any meaningful way as he is immediately punched out by a henchman. Guitar Wolf starts firing first, and some random bystander gets a head explosion for his trouble, and the captain loses some fingers. Now, let me just reiterate, this has all happened for no reason. The captain just wanted a quiet night to drink milk and push his golden balls onto the dissolute prostitutes, like you do. Well, after Guitar Wolf motorbike off into the night, it's clear what the captain has to do. He grabs his shotgun and prepares to embark on an entirely justified rampage of violence. By next morning, he's calmed down a bit. Although he has screwed a bright red Lego Man wig onto his skull, and that probably says a lot about his mental state. He spends a little time on his business, this time trying to persuade a lovely young girl to embark on a life of despicable vice. He's just about to drive her off to an undisclosed second location to, and I quote, teach her one more thing, when one of his thugs reports in. They've seen Guitar Wolf. Oh well, looks like the rampage is back on. The captain sets off, and it's worth pointing out that he has by now changed into an entirely different sea blue pair of tiny booty shorts that lace up the sides. This man has a brand to protect. We next see the captain speeding along a highway in his personal vehicle, a car which he has decided should be lined with hideous checkered velour and fur on the inside just to suit the Japanese climate. He's laughing to himself in insane glee, and it's nice to see he's enjoying his work. By sunset, he's still going, fire erupting from the tail of his car, and there's something on the radio about an invasion of USOs and zombies, but the captain could not give less of a shit when there's rampaging to be done. As it happens, the captain passes by a group of vaguely punkish-looking zombies as he rolls into town, and he asks one of them if they've seen Guitar Wolf. And the zombie seems to be trying to say something, and who knows, it's always good to have another friend, so the captain forcibly crams the zombie into the trunk of his car. You've got to be decisive when you're the captain, eyes on the prize. For no reason at all, the captain happens to pass by a large deserted building where it just so happens Guitar Wolf have holed up with that dumb ace kid from before. There are also zombies around, but this fact is so literally irrelevant to the captain's life that he barely notices. The right thing to do, the proper thing to do at this point, is start using a grenade launcher on the whole place, and the captain always does the right thing. 
when Guitar Wolf, by which I mean the lead singer of the band Guitar Wolf, steps out for a pistol duel, the captain is only too happy to oblige. Seriously, these punks have had it coming since uh, yesterday, actually. This very quickly degenerates into a, a clumsy fist fight, during which the captain reminds Guitar Wolf that they used to play together. Apparently they were partners at some point. Anyway, Guitar Wolf electrifies the captain using the power of rock and roll, which is a shame. That's not a metaphor. Apparently this is just a thing that Guitar Wolf can do. The captain is not pleased with this, and you can tell because he finally takes his wig off. Dude looks like a middle-aged barista without it. Think Gunther from Friends with booty shorts. The captain uses his own electric madness pervert powers to shoot energy bolts out of his eyes, which means you know he means business. Oh yes, and uh, at this point UFOs appear above for no reason. The captain is furious at this intrusion, and he uses his explosive eye beams to start shooting them down. Seriously, this guy is about to save the world single-handedly. When, in an absolute tragedy, I'm sure we all saw coming, bass or drum wolf, one of the two of them, turns up and shoots him straight through the belly with a rocket launcher. That, unfortunately, is the sad end of the captain. A man who only wanted to live life by his own bizarre rules and get high with prostitutes, brutally attacked and then murdered by an itinerant band of noise punk electric violence assholes. And this brings us to the end of The Captain's Tale. Thank you very much, Brother Andy. Perhaps bringing some sense to the most relentlessly nonsensical character in the film. <laughs> I mean, fr from the captain's point of view, this is all about a band walking in the room, randomly starting a fight with him, and him going about the business of ending said fight. And that's all he's about. Everything else just seems to be happening around that from his point of view. It is, it is quite a commitment that the actor made to this character. And... You just have to question the writing of how much was this on the script and how much of it was the actor just showing up and saying, I'll wear the booty shorts. I have to believe he turned up to the very first audition in those booty shorts and nobody questioned it at all. And he's wearing them to this day. He is so comfortable in them and so absolutely happy to just walk around prancing about in these tiny, tiny shorts. It's got to be a genuine lifestyle choice for him. Another interesting thing I like to point out is he has that wig on, which is his status. All of his henchmen are completely bald even with the eyebrows shaved off and um i i don't know i guess it's like as you gain status and become the leader you get your hair back i don't know maybe his lieutenants get to have eyebrows <laughs> <laughs> my well I, I feel if guitar wolf represent the rock and roll he's the sex and drugs and when you take it all together you get the whole story <laughs> there you go yeah that makes much more sense if you think of it in those terms um the director of this movie did music videos and was friends with guitar wolf the only other movies he has also made also have guitar wolf in it so i believe that the captain in their own way represents the music industry 
you know, the I managers yeah. and all the, the slimy business people that you have to deal with, especially when you're uh, a smaller act. Uh, there's even illusions, like the whole thing of him being a pervert. It's, it's so, so overwhelmingly put in there that just, these are the people that take advantage of the artist. This is the establishment. This is the man. These, this is the bad guys. You gotta wonder why he's even in the business at all. He doesn't really have any particular interest in music whatsoever. He's all about just drugs and prostitution, really. I have to applaud the director making some strong capital C creative choices. Um, you know, especially when you have so much of your budget going to to military hardware, bad zombie makeup, uh, shoddy VFX, you know, like really like when you have big, big piles of your budget going that way. Oh, and then apparently also traveling to and shooting in Thailand, which probably, although well, cheaper than shooting in, you know, shooting in the, the archipelago of Japan itself, uh, was probably also not that much cheaper. Um, so, you know, taking, taking somebody like that and saying, okay, or, or, you know, taking this character with this, this strong concept, you know, all these that, that we've been talking about of like, you know, embodying the corruption of the music industry, embodying the corruption of rock and roll that that uh, that guitar uh, wolf as a band is trying to struggle against and being like, OK, how can we do this on the cheap? Uh, I'd say, you know, in, in retrospect, it actually kind of makes a sense. And I applaud the director for doing that. Yeah. Uh, I well, castigate the director for doing that and absolutely <laughs> wish to take issue with his choices because he is trying to do a lot of things with this film and he could have done any one of those things very well with the actors and the budget and the location he had. But by choosing to do them all and doing each individual thing in a bizarre, nonsensical way that doesn't fit together in any way whatsoever, it's like trying to assemble a jigsaw out of scrabble pieces. It's not going to work. And frankly, he should have just focused on what it is he wanted to do instead of trying to do everything he could do. Is it too rock and roll for you? Is it too much rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> but he did it with conviction, and that's punk. He did it with he did it with heart, even though he tried to do too many things. He did it with heart. When you're some punk, people should have less conviction. When you're <laughs> punk rock, you only need two Scrabble pieces, and that's F and U. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you know how to do what you're doing. It doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter what budget you have. You just go out and you do it and you do it as big and as loud and as noisy and as stupid as you can. And that is now a thing that exists in the world. And you can say that I did that. Even if it sucks, I still did it. I would <laughs> posit that it really does help if you're good. True, but yeah. Out of all the venue owners, Bill, how does this venue owner of the captain sh uh, uh, hold up? As a, a person who's uh, been in many venues and uh, rubbed shoulders with uh, venue managers, he almost nails it. <laughs> <laughs> almost. Uh, booty shorts there's, and all. Yeah, there's uh, various degrees of s sticky creepy. But uh, yeah. He's uh he's an eleven on the um, Spinal Tap chart. <laughs> <laughs>
but uh, again, I, they they could have made a film just about this guy, or just about yeah. Pursuit Woman, or just about Guitar Wolf, and it would have been one single sensible film. Yeah, and the, the hair color that he chose was a purple uh, wig bowl cut, which uh, purple being a royal color, and uh, and the bowl cut was uh, typical uh, of the, the medieval times because you know they didn't have hairstylists. Then I don't think the... this guy was really looking back to his medieval forebears in order to make some grand statements on feudalism through the <laughs> mode of his hair choices. I think this was an absolute nutcase who assembles his wardrobe in the dark backwards while drunk and just decided to live that way. Feudalist. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a feudalist, actually. Well, it did just occur to me that even his name, the captain, is a call to uh, Elvis Presley's manager, the colonel, if you remember. Oh, yes. Yeah. And with all of the pompadours and rock and roll i have to think that was oh, somewhat yeah. intentional there too yeah i'm yeah, trying to add the subtext there's no subtext here this is a, no this movie is much deeper this has many levels of cinemania that we're just touching upon brothers well, perhaps uh, we should warn our viewers that uh, multiple viewings are necessary to uh, to make any sense of it but to be cautious through each individual watching that one does not develop an irreversible case of cinemania mm. you might cross past the event horizon and get sucked all the way into the film <laughs> well, i know i'm never going to look at golden balls in the same way again that reminds me of a, of a very important poem I once read on the inside of a bathroom stall somewhere. Those who write these words on walls roll their shit in golden balls. Those who read these words of wit eat those golden balls of shit. <laughs> oh, what the hell? <laughs> I'm amazed you people have ever mastered indoor plumbing at all. <laughs> Feel my cinemania is rising to near unimaginable levels. I hereby declare this concave to stand in recess, brethren. We shall return once our minds can stand the strain. Please join us in two weeks for the conclusion of our conclave on Wild Zero. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Zachariah Burks. Ethan Ireland, Andy Slack, Andre Luke Martinez, and special guest William McDonough. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Additional music courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania and Facebook at the Cinemania Society. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends, mention us on social media, and if you can, subscribe and leave a rating or review wherever you found us. Our episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can also find us on Coffee and throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free to make. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films, and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.